What is it about? Computational communication science. Hello, Internet. Welcome to our new podcast. Um, what is it about computational communication science? My name is Mario Heim. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Leipzig for data journalism and computational communication research. Hello, world. I am Emesha Domahidi. I'm an assistant professor at Technische Universität Ilmenau in Germany, and I am leading the computational communication science lab there. And we're looking for, or we're integrating, introducing a new podcast where we want to discuss the questions that come up frequently in our, well, growing very much growing uh, discipline of computational communication science. And today we start with a, a seminal first episode that we call What is Computational Communication Science and Why Would We Need a Podcast on That? Emeshe, why do we need a podcast on that? I, I would say we should talk more about computational communication science and all the things that are related to this topic. So I guess that is the opportunity. Uh, and that's what we want to do in this podcast. And so I thought we could start with a new book that I read from Kate Crawford. Did you hear about it? Atlas of AI. The book, or Kate Crawford, I think um, some of you know her. She's um, a um, researcher at Microsoft Research, but also a, a research professor at the University of Southern California. And she has been, well, more or less critically reflecting on AI, but also on data and the big data movement some years ago. Um, so you, you've certainly stumbled over her, her articles briefly. And her new book is a book where she kind of reflects on the, the logics and the, the straws that are attached to current um, artificial intelligence. What I liked really much is that she basically says that describing AI as an abstract, immaterial and purely technical thing is wrong, right? So she, she very much uh, brings in the, the social, political and economic circumstances around AI. So what, what is happening that AI is not objective or universal or as she says, a neutral computational technique. But it has very much an influence on our lives and it basically very much enforces power structures. And right, so, sorry, sorry. She, she she makes that very that that point very strong that AI is not objective. That AI is very much flawed in the way we currently deal with it. And she 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 um, introduces a, a number of of uh, examples for that. For example, the the um, biases in current data sets. Yeah, and she, she very much discusses how we actually are constructing these data sets, that this is not a natural phenomenon that we find somewhere, but that our data sets uh, or the data sets that we use for classification as the ground truth for classification are very much flawed and they uh, mirror existing discrimination. And that's interesting from somebody coming actually from the inside with Kate Crawford working at, at uh, Microsoft Research. And she also, in, in a recent interview with The Guardian, she also um, talks about that, about her, well, autonomy within the research lab, but also the kind of the, the dichotomy or the, the criticism she's, she's facing inside uh, the organization. Yeah. 
That's super interesting because most of us researchers are not working in industry, right? So we have a very different view maybe from the research side only. Yeah, also because AI traditionally has been a computer science thing and we are both social scientists. But there's a funny coincidence in timing also because earlier this year, actually pretty recently, um, the European Union just released what they call the Ethics Guidelines for Trustworthy AI, um, a kind of long-awaited document where the EU has agreed on a framework or guideline on how AI should look like, ideally from an ethical perspective. They also include legal aspects in there, particularly in the industries, not solely though. We can take some parts out for, for research as well, but particularly in the industries. And that's kind of in line with what Kate Crawford also calls for, right? She, she's calling for more regulation in a sense. Yes, that's definitely true. She does. But on the other hand, she as well says that ethics are necessary, but not sufficient to address these fundamental issues. Because what we need to look more at, at some point she says that we need to focus more on power, less, less on ethics. I mean, of course, we need ethics, but then on the other hand, we need to focus more on power. Because as she says, that AI is designed to amplify and reproduce the power structures of yeah, the companies and the states that are developing and uh, using it. On the, I mean, obviously we need ethical principles, but we need to ask ourselves as well what happens if companies don't follow these principles. If we end up in them signing these principles, but then there are no consequences if they don't follow it, we might not be where we want to get with our ethical guidelines. And that's something that the EU doesn't really address. Uh, they have translated their guidelines, of course, into all official EU languages, but there are no consequences in it. They're, these are guidelines um, and they are very, well, I wouldn't call them superficial, but they are very, well, to some extent, broad guidelines. Essentially, what the EU suggests is um, founded on three pillars. They say, well, an ethical AI, um, whatever that is, should be respecting laws. It should be respecting regulations, which I found weird to read in a guideline for ethical AI, because I would separate that from, from legal issues to some extent. But then again, it's maybe a good point made that legal is at the core of um, ethical um, aspects. A second part is that they, the EU says is that ethically AI should respect various principles and, and, and values. We can talk about them um, in a second. And also that AI should, from a technical perspective, be robust um, also when it comes to social changes affecting the AI. And there we are again, where technology cannot be seen for itself, but always has to take on this social perspective with it. Obviously, this is what the EU wants. So they, they kind of say that AI system needs to be human-centric, means that, that we want to use them in the service of humanity and the common good. We want to improve yeah, human welfare and freedom. But this is not so easy because, again, if, when I looked into these guidelines, I was wondering, okay, but how exactly do we implement these principles, and this is of course super difficult because we have so many AI applications around 
yeah, Europe, basically. So it's, of course, not possible to outline for each of them how to implement it. And this might be, in my opinion, a problem, right? It's very difficult to see whether these guidelines were implemented or not in the particular applications. The guideline then gives some, well, more hands-on principles on how to implement it. Um, it should respect human autonomy. People should have the sovereignty of over their data, for example. Decisions should be algorithmic or uh, AI decisions should be um, fair. However, what is fair is kind of left for interpretation. Is it fair to, for example, look at two groups of people in a balanced way? 50-50? Or is it fair to support the minority, for example? That's something that you doesn't, in that sense, tackle. Um, but it says it you should kind of consider it. And um, therefore, you should have the human as a center motive and involve a diverse set of stakeholders that help you guide your decision in designing the, the an AI. So here again, of course, we need to ask ourselves how we get these diverse voices into the discussion, how we include them really, because very often the communities that are affected by yeah, some AI applications, right, that might discriminate them are not heard. So this is one of the consequences, of course, of AI. So we need to be very careful here to see. Uh, so for example, if we apply AI applications, uh, in companies to, I don't know, measure and, and regulate digital work, we need to make sure that uh, workers have a voice, right? So uh, that they, they might discuss and they might implement the measures with engineers together. One problem, of course, of AI applications is that we very often don't understand them so well. So we don't uh, really know why certain <laughs> features are important or, or why we get certain results. and. I guess that this is as well a call for making them more transparent so and more transparent to the people who are affected by these applications. The EU calls that principle the principle of explicability, meaning that you should um, point out when decisions are being made by an AI, but also to lay out the processes, designing principles that went into this exact AI. And there's, I think, a nice small or short sentence in, in, in the guideline addressing, as, um, as I said before, the industries um, where the guideline says or asks essentially, and I quote, did you ensure that the AI system clearly signals that its social interaction is simulated and that it has no capabilities of understanding and feeling? To some extent, to me, that sounds as if the, a, uh, the EU... <laughs> Uh, is worried that at, at some point we might replace social interactions with with AIs, um, and and that's that's obviously for them a bad thing. Um, they 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 kind of want to at least um, highlight that 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 could be uh, become a problem. It, this is quite interesting, especially because in in this book by Kate Crawford there is this uh, one chapter. Or I mean, there are a lot of different chapters, but but she she basically talks about systems that that seem like AI but are in fact built by humans. So one example is Amazon Mechanical Turk, that that can be used basically as an interface, like a computing interface for whatever problems we have that need some some micro tasks that, that can help us with, right? But in the end, we have humans behind it. 
so then we have the other other um, way around. So we have twice, kind of vice versa. So we have a, a seemingly an AI, but in fact we have humans behind it. And these humans, of course, get very low wages. So they are, or, or they don't have a good work, of course. So they have very difficult tasks. They are under time pressure and so on. And we don't see them because we kind of have the feeling that this is a very artificial, um, yeah, kind of system that we are using for, for example, to let uh, them code something. So, so I found it really as well interesting that um, they wants the AI to signal, yeah, that it's a simulated social interaction. And sometimes, or since I read this book, I ask myself whether we shouldn't care about the other problem, right? That we don't see the humans anymore because we only see this. Uh, yeah, technical interface and kind of assume that there is no feeling behind it. My impression is that the EU guidelines are also somewhat driven by this global difference or discrepancy in who is producing AI and implementing AI. Um, the, the, the kind of the, the obvious fear in these guidelines that says, well, we want to know when AI is part of the game is to some extent, probably also a, well, a signal to overseas, in a sense, to the Silicon Valley, probably, but also to the um, Chinese um, companies that are big in the field of AI, whereas it, within the EU, there, there are quite some um, known, well-known names, company names uh, that drive AI, but the, the, the overall general movement toward more effective, toward more efficient AI is not... I think um, brought forward mainly in the EU. That's definitely right. So um, I had very much the same feeling, right? That we have here super important economic interests and political interests, and yeah, this is one of the reasons why the uh, why the EU is looking so much at this and this industry, right? And and this topic. But Mario, why are we looking at this topic? I mean, we are social scientists. We are we are no engineers. We do not construct machine learning algorithms normally. And so why should we care at all? Or why do we need to care at all? Well, I think what has become evident by now, I hope at least, um, <laughs> that's uh, that's the task we, we put uh, on ourselves for this podcast though, um, is that technological decision-making or technolo technologically driven um, decisions are not a sole technological thing anymore. They probably never have been anyhow, but it's becoming more and more evident that technology and social life, social aspects merge and become intertwined very much um, so that we need also in science disciplines that are based at this intersection. Um, and that's where a discipline comes in or has come in um, that was referred to as computational social science. And there is a seminal piece that has been published in Science back in 2009, where back at the time, that was kind of the, the well, the, at the forefront uh, that we should look at those perspectives, technology and uh, social perspectives uh, more integratively. However, we are in a kind of in a subfield of that. Yeah. So we are communication scientists. So we have a very specific view on, on computational methods and computational social sciences because we are putting the communication aspect in the center. I, I would very much agree with you, by the way, just, just as an interlude, that 
maybe all these questions never were purely technical, that we always needed the social sciences, whether we included them is a different question, because maybe in the beginning it was more about what is possible, and I, I feel that it was the same for communication science, right? That we started in a, in a different way, well, we had traditionally did focus on mass communication, our, our definitions were, yeah, different, uh, let's take the, the, again the seminal definition of, of Leswell and um, that, that we were more interested in mass media. But then, of course, uh, via digital communication, all this became a little bit different. And nowadays, of course, we have the computational part as well in, in, our, yeah, on, in our methods or in our method toolkit, but as well in our theories. Okay, so maybe I thought uh, we should maybe look, or I, I could maybe quote a definition, right, of computational communication science, just for the beginning. We don't want to work too much with definitions here, but I think this one is really important. So it's it's from a special issue edited by uh, Van Attefeld and uh, Peng, when communication meets computation, opportunities, challenges, and pitfalls in computational communication science from 2018. And there the authors say, well, or, or they think about, well, what is actually computational communication science? And then they give an idle typical definition. And now I quote, by stating that computational communication science studies generally involve large and complex data sets consisting of digital traces and other naturally occurring data requiring algorithmic solutions to analyze and allowing the study of human communication by applying and testing communication theory. So what do you think? That's, I, I find that very um, on point because it, it, it highlights that with the introduction of this perspective, of this interdisciplinary perspective, um, for us, not only have the methods changed, but also the underlying um, object under investigation, the object of research has, has changed. If we, for example, were previously, say, 25 years ago, looking at how people use the news um, and what news they find, um, whether the news are biased, for example, who, who are the experts that are being cited in the news, traditional communication science questions, um, we would go and look into newspapers, we would go and ask people what newspapers they'd read. Um, however, with the introduction of computational methods um, and, and well, the changes in the digital environment, people use the news very much, very differently. Um, people use, get their news via social media, where algorithms decide over the personalized selection of the news I see. Um, and we could look at that through appropriate methods, but we could not look at that through the traditional methods that we did, um, which were asking people what news they read and then going to the libraries and or the archives and pulling that piece of newspaper out. So we have to adapt to these changing environments through adequate methodology. And that is, I think, really nice summed up in that definition that you just read. Yes, I absolutely do agree. So obviously the the world has changed, right? And our field has changed. And I think that's what's worth reflecting on uh, here because we have, of course, yeah, some, some technological part and then we have as well changes in our theories and concepts and in our objects that we want to investigate. 
What, what I think is actually quite interesting that um, this definition that I just have quoted right, uh, appeared in a special issue of the journal Communication Methods and Measures. So it's a journal that focuses more on methods, as I said. And, and there was at the same time another special issue as well in 2018 from the Journal of Communication that, that was called uh, Ferments in the Field. And this basically went back to an earlier special issue, I think in 1983, uh, was as well called ferment in the field and back then and then in 2018 it dealt with how the field has changed over, over the last uh, years and the authors yeah, wrote as well in editorials so of Fuchs and uh, Q and they are a bit more skeptical about this um, yeah this way of uh, researching digital communication so they they do see the chances of research on digital communication um, of course but they as well criticize it. So they say a little bit, well, we have a dichotomy between pessimists and optimists, right? And uh, we, we have this discussion, which is actually odd, because uh, normally we should be somewhere in between and we should see benefits and we should see challenges. And they as well outline that the field is very fragmented, right? That it's easy to call yourself an interdisciplinary field. But in the end, the question remains, what is new? And then they, they have a sentence that I would like to quote as well, because I found it very interesting in comparison to, to what was said before. They say, we would like to add that big data analytics, in, in, in this case, that it threatens to colonize the social sciences and humanities by turning these fields into computer science. If computational methods enter the curriculum of communication studies degrees in a major way that requires students to learn advanced programming, then not enough time will be left for practicing critical thinking, qualitative methods, social theory, critical theory, ethics, philosophy, history, and other crucial liberal art skills, because learning how to code properly is very time intensive. That's a very drastic and dramatic way of putting it. Uh, I, I like the contrast, though. Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of these questions are essentially questions we want to discuss in later episodes of this podcast, right? Is it really necessary that social scientists need to learn to code? Um, do we need to maybe um, consider other perspectives also um, instead of just this dichotomy between the social sciences and the natural or the technological? Um, or the information sciences. But um, I think also that this bipolarity that you just brought up is maybe, it's just by feeling, but maybe that's also a reason why we call ourselves computational communication sciences to make very clear up front in which kind of, uh, which end of this, of this uh, spectrum we are or, or this subdiscipline is. Um, also, the, the, the journal you just mentioned, for, mentioned, for example, the, the um, competition, um, not com competition, communication methods and measures is a journal that has been around for quite some time and is not purely driven by this computational turn. Um, but then in contrast, we also have a new journal uh, in the field, quite new journal in the field that is called Computational Communication Research, which is very much echoing this um, one side of this uh, dichotomy. Um, and I my impression is that this identity um, around a, a term that makes very clear what this subdiscipline stands for has also um, benefited the rise and, and the, the, the huge influx in such 
journal articles, such communities, such um, conferences even. Um, we see um, new professorships that have this um, job title. We see lots and lots of young and coming scholars that call themselves computational communication scholars, computational communication researchers. And to some extent, this is certainly due to what we said before, changes in the subject and the object of, of, um, of the field. There is more data available. There's more different uh, big data available, whatever that is. We have to deal with trace data. Therefore, we need adequate resources and, and, and methods. So I think that is one part of it. But the other, again, is I think this identity forming within a very much fragmented larger field that is communication science. I absolutely agree. I do believe that the communities that we are building now, or, or this is a super important aspect to see the communities that are, we are building now, and to ask ourselves who we do include, or who is <laughs> including this community, how we can include different perspectives, how important the technical part is, but how important, on the other hand, our communication science theories and concepts and our view on the world are. I, I do believe that uh, we have a lot to add to this uh, general field of uh, computational social sciences. So, and I think that's one reason why we do this podcast, just to come back to, to our question, why, why should we do this? And I, I believe that this, this could be the most important and the best reason to do so. Absolutely. And, and, and I think, well, some of the, the things we, we tackled have traditionally been covered solely by communication scholars. I think these topics now are more and more requiring technological perspectives. But on the other hand, we started with AI and computational communication science, not only AI. Um, but it's, I think it's a good example of a uh, topic that has traditionally been covered by the information or computer sciences and realized it's lacking the social perspective. And that's where, where computational communication science um, comes in. Absolutely. Okay, so how are we going to do this? Well, we kind of want to discuss. So we said, okay, we don't want to do this alone. So it's not just you and me, even though, of course, this could be as well interesting. <laughs> so we, we want to invite guests uh, in the following episodes. So we, the idea is that we discuss uh, particular topics with our guests who are scholars from computational communication science or computational social sciences or even uh, engineering or uh, computer sciences because the field is inherently interdisciplinary. We are doing this in English, although we're both sitting and working in German universities because we want to be very much inclusive. Um, we will try to uh, include and welcome guests globally. Um, however, please forgive us if the first few episodes are a, a bit a bit centric in the sense that um, you, you you reach out to the closer contacts first. That's network uh, theory, another uh, interesting sub uh, aspect of computational communication science that we might tackle at some point. Um, we have a long list of topics and guests that we want to discuss. However, we are very open if uh, you want us to discuss certain topics or invite certain guests so please just reach out to us email us or reach out to us via twitter i think we're very very much um findable then we will have the podcast somewhat regularly we will give our best um to provide um yes regular episodes who are these episodes for we want to provide a discussion forum a discussion forum particularly aimed at 
young scholars, master students, PhD students, but also early career postdocs all across the computational communication science. Okay, I think that's it for today. That's it for today. Take care. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye. What is it about? Computational communication science?